this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is sponsored by Retro Photo, an obsession, a personal selection of vintage cameras and the photographs they take by David Elwand. This is a coffee table book for adults. It includes over 200 photographs on more than 100 different cameras. This is the ultimate collector's item for professional and amateur photographers alike, and unlike any other book that's currently on the market. Retro Photo will appeal to those who are new to film photography and to seasoned professionals. David Elwand has been a photographer for more than 30 years. He's the author photographer for Fairyality and many other books. He's a keen collector of vintage and secondhand photographic equipment and continues to work with traditional darkroom methods as well as the latest digital technology. Pick up Retro Photo by David Elwand wherever books are sold or click the link to the book in our show notes. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 185, and we're recording on Saturday, November 26th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Becca <laughs> Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We had the wrong thing in our agenda, and that was me doing math. Like, what day is it? Hey, you uh, did that on the fly. Very I did it impressive. on the fly, yeah. I added two on the fly. Boy, give me a cookie for that. It's our holiday <laughs> rec show. Uh, we've been, we've been uh, thanksgiving uh, the, oh, yes. the, 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 the coffee is percolating. It's a cozy, I, I've got my slippers on. Oh, uh, I had pie for breakfast. Oh yeah. I had uh, cinnamon, we had cinnamon rolls for breakfast. It's, Ooh. it's a very holiday atmosphere here at the Black O'Neill household. Uh, so it's our recommendation show. And a quick thing is that we, we decided that since we gave you short shrift on the window to get recommendations in, that we'll take uh, recommendations for another week. Um, so get them in by f- this Friday, December, blah, 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 whatever that's going to be. First, first, December 1st. December 1st. Um, and if we have enough for a whole show, we'll do a whole show of them. And if we only get a few, we'll do a few and we'll do news. So um, we want to get those recommendation requests in. We got really good ones. I, I, we, since yeah, we these didn't are get, fun. We didn't get like a whole boat load like we sometimes do when we do like a whole month worth of uh, pre-show calls and reminders. But I'd say uh, the quality and specificity uh, of the ones we got are especially good. So mm-hmm. uh, let's get into it. Why don't you read the first one here? Okay. This is, well, this one is unsigned, but you'll know who you are. Yes. Uh, hello. I'm looking for recommendations for someone who loves contemporary romance. Her favorite authors are Samantha Young, E.L. James, Christina Lauren, Tamara Weber, and Colleen Hoover. I know that contemporary romance is not something you talk about on the podcast a lot, especially new adults, so this could be a challenge. Hope you pick my question. Have a great holiday and happy reading. And so we're looking for contemporary romance. I'm going to throw this one to you. No, well, see, okay, so I don't do a whole lot of this, but um, Sonali Dev was a was her publisher sponsored one of the Read Harder book groups the other Mm -hmm. day, or the other day, like a few months ago. Kensington, yeah, Kensington, and the book there was a change of heart. And I gave those all away, and I was reading about it, and I got interested. So I looked, and it looks like her, I don't know if it was her first book or not, I read, called The Bollywood Affair, mm-hmm. which I believe, do you know, is this, does this, would, is this fair to call contemporary romance? Yes, Did you yeah, read this? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's fair. I read The Bollywood Bride, which was one of our okay. favorites for the site 
last year. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's set in contemporary times mm-hmm. and they are romances. So the uh, my boxes are ticked. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, um, it, it has, it's set in the U.S., but it's sort of a trans-oceanic between India and Michigan. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. doing this from memory, so I think this is right. And if you've read this uh, and I'm getting it wrong, I'm so sorry. But it's about people that are, you know, uh, Indian Americans coming back and forth. There's some arranged marriage stuff that's a little bit later in life, a second romance that's happening. I thought it was really good. Um, I enjoyed it. I like rom-com movies, but I've never really gotten into contemporary romance. But I really like this. And I probably should read more contemporary romance as a, yeah. I don't know, just as a, a salt to my to my diet, you know, of books and put some more stuff in there and add more flavor. But I think she's really talented um, and a really interesting book. Um, and I've heard the subsequent ones are good. I think this was the first one, or maybe it was the mm-hmm. third one. I'm not exactly sure. But there's a she has a series, uh, and the next one is a Bollywood Bride, I think, that comes mm-hmm. after this. Yeah. Um, anyway, I thought that was uh, was good. So the rare romance pick from me, and, and I'm yeah, glad it know, fit the category because this is like the only romance uh, one I've I read was, in like two years. I've never put the pieces together before, but for someone who likes Nora Ephron movies, yeah, that's right. As much as you do, you really should read more contemporary. Well, that, that would be a good recommendation request for me, actually. Oh, uh, if yeah. people, you know, what, what's the When Harry Met Sally of contemporary romance? Yeah, you, know, you know, I, I don't know what that would be exactly, but I, I'd, I'd sure like to hear that. People have a that's, suggestions. That's a that is a good question. Um, I've got a few picks. I read mostly historical romance because I just love the ridiculousness of Regency mm. stuff. But um, I have a couple. The first is the flirting is. Flirting with Fire by Kate Meter. This is the first in her Hot in Chicago series. Um, I believe that I picked this up after Sarah McLean recommended it in her. Mm. Uh, she writes a regular column for the Washington Post book section about romance. Uh, and it's set in Chicago. The um, heroes of the series are all firefighters. Uh, many, A couple of them are brothers who are all in the same firehouse. And the setup in this one is that uh, one of the firefighter brothers like had a hot-headed temper moment. And so the fire House has to bring in a PR expert uh, to sort of smooth things over with the public and get the firefighters back in the uh, Chicago citizens' good graces. And the publicist strikes up a romance with one of the firefighters, and it's steamy and a little silly and super fun. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I, uh, since I don't read a lot of contemporary, I also asked our contributors, and they recommended um, Molly O'Keefe um, and Alicia Rye. And I've read some of Alicia Rye's mm. other romances. I just haven't read her contemporary. But her writing is always really great, and it has an excellent sense of humor. Um, so I would, you know, do a Google and see which of her books are contemporary. Um, and while you were talking, Jeff, about the rom-com thing, it reminded me of my very first romance, uh, which was Bet Me by Jennifer Crusey. And uh, she writes excellent contemporaries. They are definitely like, I think maybe that's where you should go um, for you, is the Jennifer Crusey romances. That's but, how you uh, say it? Oh, oh, okay. I'm having a dyslexia moment. I thought it was Cruise, but it's Crusey. C-R-U-S-I-E. S-I-E, yeah. yeah. Um, and Bet Me is about a woman who ends up dating a guy that uh, they think they're not really going to like each other. And they sort of have this, their relationship is founded on a bet about how long it will last. And of mm. course, they, they, of course they actually 
actually like do fall for Oh, it has a cockamamie other. premise. I love a good rom-com cockamamie premise. Yes, yes. yeah, you're going to you're going to love it. Um and there's like a running gag with Krispy Kreme donuts, not in any gross way, but like it's it has romance and humor and donuts and that's um I feel like I've failed you in not having recommended this. <laughs> I'm looking at an Amazon right now. I'm I'm in, I say I'm interested. I I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's great fun. It's the book that convinced me that like romances were a thing that I would like and enjoy years ago. Um, thanks to Sarah Wendell at Smart Bitches Trashy Books. So I think uh, Jennifer Crusey seems to be a perennial favorite. I would recommend that for uh, our listener here as well. And just so I get the order right, and I feel good about myself. So the Sonali Dev order is a Bollywood affair, then a Bollywood bride, then change of heart, which yes. I've heard is a little and less, uh, it's a little more trends into literary fiction is what I've heard about change of heart. I don't know if sure yes. that's true. Uh, did yeah, you read that? And- yeah, I did. Okay. Um, and I think like a Bollywood affair and the Bollywood bride are sort of connected, but you don't like with most romance series, you don't have to read them in mm. order to like everything stands alone, but just con- continues threads that you'll pick up if you do read them in order. Um, and a change of heart is a different like okay. universe, okay. Um, different characters and stuff. But that yes, that is the order. Okay, let's do it. And our... it is yeah, yeah. Change of heart is m- much more of like a straight novel. Yeah, than, and because I wasn't sure, and that's why when I read the copy, the jacket copy of that, I was like, that sounds interesting. And then someone said, you know, I think you might want to start with the first one. So hey, that's mm-hmm. what I did. I took the I took the advice. Okay, so we're gonna do our first sponsor, Ramy Nightingale by Kate DiCamillo. So Kate DiCamillo is a two-time Newbery medalist, the author, a shortlisted for the National Book Award. And this is a coming-of-age middle-grade novel and the sort of read-alike or, you know, if, if you like Because of Winn-Dixie, this might be something to you. So the main character, Ramey Clark, has come to realize that everything, absolutely everything, depends on her and she has a plan. If Ramey can win the Little Miss Central Florida Tire Competition, then her father, who left town two days ago with a dental hygienist, will see Ramey's picture in the paper and she might come. He might come home. So to win, she doesn't just have to do the regular good deeds and learn how to twirl a baton. She also contend with the wispy, frequently fainting Louisiana Elefante, who has a show business background, and the fiery, stubborn Beverly Tabinsky, who is determined to sabotage the contest. But as the competition approaches, loneliness, loss, and unanswerable questions draw the three girls into an unlikely friendship and challenge each of them to come to uh, each other's rescue in unexpected ways. So I, I think combine Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants with Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. and you've oh, got yes. uh, Ramey Nightingale by Kate DiCamillo. So thanks to uh, Candlewick for sponsoring the show, and uh, that's uh, Ramey Nightingale. That's available wherever books are sold out now. Okay. That, is, that, 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 that was an excellent uh, like combination thing you just and, did and you there. saw it. that was an ad lib too that that mm-hmm. wasn't in the notes i just did that that was that's i it's like adding two to november 24th and getting november 26th just just <laughs> bang right there okay i guess You're i'll read so the on next your game one. today i am i'm it's before nine o'clock i uh, i have uh, neurons to to fire hi rebecca and jeff yay for the return <laughs> of the holiday recommendation show always a fun else to listen to i just threw that in to stroke our own egos my request this is from kate Books to help me and my two best lady friends feel better about the election results. Wah, wah. Um, maybe books to get inspired about activism would help, or straight up escape reality fiction for when the anxiety gets too bad. I look forward to hearing your opinions. Thanks. Uh, that's Kate. Uh, go, you first. Kate, girl, I've got you. Okay. So we're going to start with Escape from Reality, because I did this on my way back from Book Riot Live mm. a couple weeks ago, where like I hadn't been able to read, and I think we talked about it on uh, this show, that my reading parts have just been broken uh, from election stress. And I was just like, you know what? <laughs> no more of this. I'm going to read a book. Um, so I picked up Big Little Lies by Leanne Moriarty mm. in the airport 
uh, bookstore because I had just told myself I was going to walk into the airport bookstore. I was going to buy whatever jumped out at me that looked like I could just sink into it. And I'd heard a lot of great things about Moriarty, but had never read her. And this, like, it did the trick. Uh, so the setup of Big Little Lies is uh, think wealthy suburbs, kind of desperate housewivesy in Sydney, Australia. Uh, there's a young mom who's, I think she's 24. She moves into town with her five year old son, Ziggy, and he's going to start kindergarten at the local school. Um, but he gets accused of bullying another little girl. And his mom knows it couldn't be him, but nobody nobody believes that it's not him. He's the new kid in town. His mom is young. They don't know her story. She doesn't fit in with all these affluent parents. Uh, so the parents of the other little girl start a petition to get Ziggy kicked out of school. Meanwhile, some other moms are dealing with, there's two other mothers that are sort of central characters uh, that are, one of them is dealing with her teenage daughter, her ex-husband and his new wife have a child who's going to kindergarten with all of their kids. And there's just all this drama. And you know, from the start of the book that six months from the start of the book, someone is going to die at the trivia night at the elementary school. Mm. Uh, But you don't know who dies or how, or if it's an accident or if someone kills them and the whole thing builds up. So you get like six months of this like soapy suburban thing. Um, And my pitch for it it, that I told Liberty on all the books last week is that it's like if Tom Parada's little children had a kind of woke baby with desperate housewives. Um, There's, there are some dark elements. There's some domestic violence. um, So trigger warning, uh, if that is a thing that you're sensitive to in fiction. Um, But the characters sort of talk to each other and themselves about this in a very forward feminist way that I really appreciated. But the story was great. It was just ridiculous enough that I was like, yes, you know, I can't think about the world, but I totally care about like what the drama at this Sydney suburban elementary school is. Um, it was it's so different from anything in my life um, that it was just the, the perfect escape. Um, for thinking about activism, I've got two for you. Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. I have not read this one yet. Mm. Um, Amanda was reading it last week and said it was just giving her all the life that she needed. Um, it was originally published in 2004, but they've put out a new version of it with a new forward and afterward. And this is uh, like straight from the synopsis from the publisher, uh, makes a radical case for hope as a commitment to act in a world whose future remains uncertain and unknowable. Um, Solnit draws on decades of activism and a wide reading of environmental, cultural, and political history to argue that radicals have a long neglected history of transformative victories, Um, which that's the thing that we need to be reminded of right now, I think, as um, progressive people who are upset about the election, that um, that the work through the past has the work that we have done, the work that our predecessors have done resulted in victories that did change the world um, and that there have been positive consequences to our actions, even if they're not immediately seen or directly knowable to us. And so it's a real call to uh, not despair, but to start thinking in a hopeful way and to, uh, to take action. Uh, And then one, that I've just started reading is Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis, uh, also a longtime, very experienced activist, feminist thinker and writer. Um, And she's pulling together uh, things from activism all over the world. The book starts with a look at Ferguson. She goes into Palestine. She pulls together decades of experience um, and to talk about sort of the fundamentals of activism and the the constant work of becoming free and and staying free. Um, And so far, I'm really enjoying that read. Uh, I don't have a um, feel better 
about the election book. I've just got an escape book for you. That, that's all I've got for you. Uh, and in fact, this is I went on an escape. Not, it wasn't about politics or anything. Just in January of this year, I went on a mystery reading binge. Uh, and largely, they were Agatha Christie. So I'm going to recommend my favorite of those Agatha Christie books. Um, and, and some think her best one, and I can see why. It's called The Merger of Roger Ackroyd. Um, and it's one of her – it's the end of her early mystery cycle. It came out in 1927. And I saw it because I, I think I looked at a list of you know the, the 10 best Agatha Christie's because there's so many you don't know where to start, um, which is a little tricky. And I picked those out because it sounded interesting. So the setup is it's a small country town. It's narrated by the, the town's doctor. Um, and the guy, Roger Ackroyd, gets murdered. And, you know, it's a mystery. That's what you're going to expect to happen. Um, and uh, Hercule Poirot has retired, so he's sitting around growing vegetables. He's, you know, one of her great, along with Miss Marple, her great uh, detective. And so it's an, it's an older detective who kind of just gets roped into solving the mystery because he's in town and he's there and he's part of the, the mix. Um, and I, I, I'm not, you know, there's a, there's, it's a controversial book of its time, Um at the time, there was actually a group of mystery writers that were called the Detection Club that agreed together to sort of play fair in writing their detective novels. Um, and Christie almost got thrown out <laughs> because of the unconventionality of the merger of Roger Ackroyd. So it's it's hard to see Christie now as anything but sort of like the grand dame of mysteries and like the, the archetype of all archetypes. But in Ackroyd and other things like um, – and then there were none, which is another interesting Christie plot – um, she's really playing with it. Like she's experimenting and she's not afraid to try something new and get her, almost get herself thrown out of the detection club. So if you're looking for a mystery that will keep your uh, cognitive wheel spinning till the very, very end, I uh, highly recommend The Merger of Ackroyd, a great place to start with Christy if you've never read her, but also just a great, you know, curl up coffee, read it in a few hours, um, get her done book. The Murder uh, of Ackroyd, you know- Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. I've never read an Agatha Christie novel. I, I, you, I, you'd like, I mean, uh, Lib, as we both know, is a yes. huge Agatha Christie fan. Huge. I'm surprised she hasn't broken up with me yeah, yet. Yeah, I know. Her. Well, she always, every every few months, she's like, is this today's going to be the day where I can't take it anymore? I got to let Rebecca go. <laughs> got to cut her loose. She can't read Agatha Christie. Between, yeah, having not read Agatha Christie and having not read... Um, Lonesome Dove, I can't oh. believe Liberty, <laughs> keeps me around. <laughs> yeah, West. well, you kind of like Western. I mean, you like yeah, the Sisters of. Brothers, right? That's, you yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Lonesome Dove is nothing like that. It just so happens it's a Western. Um, anyway. I'm deep into Westworld right now, so I might be, ah, I could probably be sold on, on reading a, a Western with mm, robots. That's interesting. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, that's that one. And I guess you're up to read the next yes. one? Yes, yeah, this next one, uh, let's see, it is unsigned. Uh, so this listener and her girlfriend adopted the uh, Icelandic tradition of giving each other books on Christmas Eve and spending the night reading them, which this is an excellent tradition that I have not heard of, yes. and I would like to do it too. Of course it's Icelandic. Uh, Icelanders. Iceland has its own, I don't know, they're like a wonderland of winter holiday reading. They're Seriously. They're remarkable. I want to do this now. Like my household's tradition is pajamas on Christmas Eve, but I yeah. feel like pajamas and a new book, it would be perfect. Well, ours uh, is so Pizza Hut. And I, Pizza Hut can be it? combined with a book. Yeah, going way back to when we were kids. Yeah. Um, anyway, I like that. Yeah. Okay, so they're on the lookout for this year's book. Mm. And their girlfriend is trying to get into more nonfiction that aren't memoirs. She's interested in everything and likes to read diversely. Uh, Wait, I got a quick procedural question. So... Uh-huh. The, 
from it doesn't say here. Are, do you understand? Are they reading the same book, or they're bo- they're giving each other a I book? I think they just give each other a book. Okay, all right. I like yeah. that. I like that. I could. I like either way. Where we where yeah. both decide to read a book together. Like I mm-hmm. like that, or I like, like a real time book. Yeah, club yeah. Thing. Or, or you know, either way is fine. Either way is acceptable. Uh, for this thing that has no one needs my we opinion on. We approve of your traditions. We, we approve of this thing you told us about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this is this is maybe uh, we got more picks. Uh, where I don't know where to. Yeah, uh, go ahead. You start. This well, I was to say this is a shared wheelhouse yeah. of ours. So like, I got to the document first here, but I was I tried to leave I tried to leave ones off that I knew you would want to talk mm. about. So um, I was going to say Mary Roach. I think is the queen of nonfiction that aren't memoirs, um, especially if you're trying to get into more nonfiction. Her books are so much fun. Which one? Which uh, one I, should they start with? What do you think? Which wrote? Oh, I agree. I just it's you can go a bunch of different ways. Yeah, you can go a bunch. Of, you know, I think with Mary Roach, you start at the beginning. Stiff is just, mm. uh, it's so, I mean, it's weird and gross, but so interesting. And it's about all of the things that happen to bodies after they are donated to science. Um, and it's Mary Roach's first. So I think it's a cool way to see her find her voice mm. um, and do the thing that she does where she gets it, where she gets involved. You know, she's not just an objective journalist. She kind of immerses herself and becomes the subject in some ways. Um, but if you don't want to do a book about corpses as your Christmas thing, um, I really, really like Bonk. Also, she it's uh, it's silly and fun. And she goes into uh, researching sex research, basically. And she and her husband participate in a study. You learn all kinds of fun facts that are like not really repeatable in mixed company, but uh, that if you have a good group of friends, you can totally repeat in mixed mm-hmm. company. Um, I think that one is really fun and interesting. Packing, well, they're all good, right? Packing for Mars is about the like unknown, the, the like unseen parts of space travel, how people poop in space, mm-hmm. uh, all that sort of thing. I think really the only one of hers that I didn't love that I don't widely recommend is Spook, um, which is I haven't about, read like, that one. That's the one I haven't read. Yeah, it, I well, you're not. I don't think you're missing anything. It's about like uh, uh sort of debunking beliefs about the afterlife and uh or sp- like the paranormal um trying to trying to point science at a thing that you can't really science um and it just didn't it just wasn't as much fun for me okay. as the rest of hers but i kind of think you can't go wrong with mary roach yeah the my go-to roach and i'm a little more squeamish so i i go packing for mars it's a little mm-hmm. less down in the the plumbing of the human body, though there is a lot in. I mean, she, it's Roach, so she doesn't shy away from it. But it, it, you know, there's there's a bunch of other aerospace science stuff. You know, how do you get a, a human body to live in space? Um, that's my go to one for that. And, and you go, you're, we're going to be on this one for a while. So keep going. You're next. Mm-hmm. I don't interrupt. Go. Okay. Go, go. Uh, let's see. This these are big ones, but Siddhartha Mukherjee's yeah. books. Um, the first is The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a biography of cancer, and it is just fascinating about like the very earliest understandings that we had of cancer in medical science all the way up to contemporary days and how those discoveries were made, uh, who the people are that have developed treatment, sort of missteps along the way. And Mukherjee is a physician and a writer, and he has such empathy and appreciation for his patients. He never loses sight of the fact that he's not writing just about science. He's writing about a thing that affects almost everyone's life in some way, uh, whether you 
are a cancer patient at some point, or you know someone uh, who is a cancer patient. And it's just, uh, I think, a beautiful and important, amazing work. Um, we've talked about it a ton of times on on this show. I think it appears every year on this episode. Um, but then this year, he had the gene, uh, which is just a super deep dive into genetics, mm-hmm. uh, way back to Gregor Mendel and the peas, uh, and all the way up to what we understand about genetics and DNA today. Um, so, so, so fascinating. I would go with Emperor of All Maladies over the gene, but they're both wonderful. Those are big nonfiction, but they're very readable. Yeah. Um, so I think for your girlfriend who who's trying to get more into nonfiction, like if you can jump the hurdle of reading a 700-page book about cancer and enjoy it, which if anybody can make it enjoyable, Mukherjee does, then you can know that you're going to – you can read other types of nonfiction and sort of not be intimidated by that, which I'm I'm trying to read between the lines here. If you're trying to get into nonfiction that's not memoir, um, maybe there's a little hesitation about where to start, but I think Mukherjee is good. Yeah, I, I'm going to switch up now that once you – I was saying the same thing about that, trying to get into more nonfiction that aren't memoirs. And um, I've got some picks that are kind of along the lines of yours. Um, actually, these are books that we both read. But mm-hmm. I'm just realizing that maybe narrative nonfiction might be a good bridge. Um, ah, yeah. From you know, memoirs typically has the follows the arc of someone's life or a part of their life. Um, so I'll do a couple of those. And these, and the, hey, these aren't these aren't these aren't hidden gems. These are just big books that you know you probably you can find a paperback favorite tables all over the place but there's a reason because they're readable mm-hmm. and so my first one is the lost city of z by david grand oh yes good which pick. um apparently is going to be a movie soon uh i'm not oh. sure but basically there's this lost city in the amazon um that a couple different and i don't want to spoil it it's hard to i don't i want to give you a tease without um giving it away but Several expeditions go in search of it, <laughs> and, and like Teddy Roosevelt went. Yes, once, yes, right? and over many, many years, um, a, a long obsession of uh, amateur and professional archaeologists. Um, really, really good, readable, kind of a, a natural archaeological mystery, uh, suspenseful, really beautiful and amazing book. So that's *The Lost City of Z* by David Grant. Um, the other one's a little it's it's a little less straight narrative, but it turns it's 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 stories that you know real stories that's it's very compelling is the girls of Atomic City, um, the mm. untold story of the woman who helped win World War II. Basically, the women, um, the mathematicians, and all all around the the people who did round the clock activity in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, as part of America's atomic program. Um, this one came out a few years ago. Um, and I, this is the one. There's there's been several of these books. There's the Rise of the Rocket Girls came out since then, and then the Hidden Figures book, which is the book that the movie that's coming out in January mm-hmm. or December is based on. And I'm sure those two are good too. And so you might check those out. I just haven't read those. Um, and just, but I can speak to the Girls of Atomic City. Um, you know, an amazing. You know, it's an amazing project at all. The the Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge Project, and then that you get a, an angle on it, basically this untold, forgotten, um, underappreciated women who did so much of the work um, that went to that. So those are my narrative nonfiction picks. And my big sort of, I don't know, how would we describe this sort of genre that you and I like? That's like, because I, I got Neurotribes by Steve Silberman, which we both liked, and then Wonderland, which I just finished this week, I talked about last week's show by Stephen Johnson. They're not really cultural histories. They're kind of... I mean, they take uh, neuro. I guess Neurotribes is about the history of 
autism as a diagnosis, um, as a condition that we understand, and as a condition that we don't understand. Silverman starts this, the book in a really interesting way by talking about famous cases of quirky people, um, and then sort of re- not reverse diagnosing them, but showing that autism and autism spectrum conditions aren't really the new phenomenon necessarily that we think it is now. Like a, a lot of us have heard that autism diagnoses are up, and I don't know the exact figure, but considerably in the recent age, and people are like, is it the internet? Is there, you know, iPhones in our pocket? Are we getting you know, nuked by space? And what, you know, what, what is it that's causing autism? And Silverman's large scale argument, and tell me if I've got this wrong, if you remember it differently, is not really that autism is any more prevalent now than it once was, but that our language and understanding of neurodiversity is so more sophisticated now than it once was. And we, yeah, that's absolutely looking at a lot of disparate conditions um, and uh, yeah. Uh, and mental ability and mental functioning as being part of a larger story. Um, I, I, you know, I haven't read too many books in the last couple of years that really changed the way I see the world, but this one really does. And how I think about neurodiversity um, brought me the language for neurotypical and neuroatypical uh, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being mentally ill or something like that. Autism as a condition that people live with, it provides certain different kinds of mental abilities and certain kinds of mental hurdles. Um, and Silverman is also a really good follow on Twitter. I think I've said this before. Yeah, he's fascinating. Um, but if you like medicine, if you're into cultural psychology, uh, I think that one's really great. And one that's a little more fun is Wonderland by Stephen Johnson. I talked about a little bit last week. I'd just gotten into it, but I can say a little bit more about it now. It does exactly what I like Stephen Johnson to do. Um, mm-hmm. the, his corner, you know, Mary, Reach, Mary Roach has her corner. Uh, uh, Bill Bryson has his corner. And Stephen Johnson has his corner. But what he kind of does is synthesizes large-scale historical phenomenon into sort of, I guess, more discrete categories. So like How We Got to Now, which is book, he sort of takes, I think it's seven ideas, cold, hot, glass, and sort of follows the cultural trajectory of how those things came to be, how they intersect with the technological world and the economic world, but also the cultural world. And Wonderland is about play. So it's games, fashion, um, diversions of all kinds. There's a really, I mean, one of the strongest chapters is about the shopping mall um, mm-hmm. and how it became part of uh, a reaction to, but also something that allowed suburbia in America to exist. I thought it was really, really interesting stuff. Um, and all of his books, I think, are, you know, if you like history, but you also want to be entertained, I think Stephen Johnson's a really good way to it. It's not hardcore academic history, but still he's done his homework. Um, so yeah, I like that. They're a lot. like, smart sort of pop science yeah it's hard. cultural history because they're not we micro really... histories right because they know and and yeah. They, yeah they're like large scale and this the thing in our venn diagram too is like if it's a book about like how the brain works mm-hmm. we're both going to be into that so like neurotribes does that thinking fast and slow yep. um sort of pop science Psychosocial, cultural. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like, know what to call it. Like almost you would like find it- almost like environmental studies, and not in sort of the Greenpeace sort of way, but like in these large scales, looking at a particular condition, problem, or trend synthetically across multiple disciplines. Right. Right. So it's, it's like I think these would be the like social studies section of yeah, the yeah. If you studied American studies or something like that, or cultural anthropology in college, or thought about it or liked a class in linguistics, you know, any of those sort of anthropological disciplines, um, this is a good way to keep uh, keep your toe uh, in that pool. So those are so what I what I pick. Lost City of Z by David Grant, 
Girls of Atomic City. I don't think I shouted out the author's name there, which is Den- Denise Kiernan. Um, and then I said Neuro Tribes by <laughs> I had Neutro Tribes, which is a different one. <laughs> Neuro Tribes by Steve Silberman, and then Wonderland by Stephen Johnson. Uh, Neuro Tribes and Wonderland are both really good on audio. I, I I've read them. I did both of those on audio. The other two I did in print, so I I cannot say anything about that there. Um, yeah, we we could get, we could do a whole show on these. Like we could, we re- could. We could do really that's, dive into to the that's like. The nonfiction section of like the Shinsky O'Neill. Yes, wheelhouse. yeah, yeah. We could do that for a while. All right, let's get into another read, and then we got some more. We got to burn through some of these. Let's get going. All right, our next sponsor is the Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz. She is a school librarian, and she previously won the Newbery Medal for Good Masters, Sweet Ladies. Our own Amanda Nelson loved this book. It's the winner of the 2016 Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction, uh, and the 2016 Association of Jewish Libraries Sydney. Taylor Award. Uh, So in The Hired Girl, Laura Amy Schlitz brings her delicious wit and keen eye to early 20th century America in a moving yet comedic tour de force. This is about 14-year-old Joan Scraggs. Just like the heroines in her beloved novels, she yearns for real life and true love. But what hope is there for adventure, beauty, or art on a hard scrabble farm in Pennsylvania where the work never ends? Over the summer of 1911, Joan pours her heart out into her diary as she seeks a new, better life for herself. Because maybe, just maybe, a hired girl cleaning and cooking for $6 a week can become what a farm girl could only dream of, a woman with a future. Newbery medalist Laura Amy Schlitz relates Joan's journey from the muck of the chicken coop to the comforts of a society household in Baltimore with electricity, carpet sweepers, and sending out the laundry. And she takes readers on an exploration of feminism and housework, religion and literature, love and loyalty, also cats, hats, and bunions. So <laughs> this is great copy. Um, so that is The Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, let's see. So this one, I, this one's kind of jokey. I'm not sure what, what, what this one is about. So this is, um, which Philip Roth best encapsulates the Philip Rothiness Rebecca so despises? I think we've already, he's no Dan Brown. I, I well, didn't know if this is serious or not. I don't know if you want to take a crack at this. Want me to take a crack? Where, where do you want, how do you want to go? You had left well, this blank, jo- so I didn't know what to do. I, I know. I kind of didn't know what to do with it. Um, well, my jokey response is that the Carl Ove Nausgaard uh, memoirs. <laughs> go now read my, my least favorite <laughs> Philip Roth book is My Struggle, volume one. <laughs> Yeah, right. Best encapsulate yeah. the Philip Rothiness I so despise. Um, you know, it was really Portnoy's complaint yeah. that broke me. But it's been uh, I haven't read Philip Roth um, since the last time someone made me, which was in college. Uh, and so I think Portnoy's complaint was the one that I was kind of like, man, Philip Roth and I are never going to be friends. Um, but uh, I do agree with this listener that he is no Dan Brown. Then again, we can't ask anyone to be right, Dan Brown. Right. Uh, and I've read I've read the Zuckerman trilogy, which I think you're going to talk yeah. about here. Um, and I did not really object to American Pastoral, but I would like to read it now mm. like with my understanding of the world and race. I as think it is. I would, too, because I really liked American Pastoral as, as well. I'm concerned. Yeah, now. it's been like 12 or 14 years since I read it. And uh, yeah, right, I have worries. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I will say, I, I, I'm guessing, so if, if you, and again, Roth gets both more and less than he deserves. I think that's kind of my feel. I, I like Roth, but there's also his indulgent moments. My And I think the Zuckerman trilogy, which is Zuckerman Bound, Zuckerman Unbound, and then one more, I can't remember what the third one is. It's It's Roth writing in the 70s. Sort of after his most, you know, Goodbye Columbus when it came out in the fifties is a 
it's it's a novella and then some short stories, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful book, um, and he's really grappling with first order problems about being uh, a Jew in America. Um, and also not wanting to be a Jew in America and fighting within his own community, his own father about, you know, not wanting to be part of the people um, and, you know, sort of wanting to go date the girl in Short Hills, New Jersey, and um, really struggling with his, his his microclimate. By the time we get to Zuckerman Trilogy in the 70s, it, I think it's what, it's much more self-indulgent. Like a lot of – I think the third book is just Phil uh, – uh, what's Zuckerman's first name? Robert Zuckerman, I think. It's it's kind of his alter – is Ross' alter ego. And he's just sitting around his apartment like feeling bad for himself. You know, he, it, it's you – know, it's, 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 Introspective it's like to the nth degree, navel gazing. Uh, it's it's not particularly good on sex, race, or class, or privilege, and it's it's just kind of wallowing in his Philip Rothiness. So that I think that's the the tar pit I wouldn't want to get stuck in again. Um, <laughs> but then there is the there is the Roth that can use his own introspection and I to do something really amazing, like Operation Shylock, which came out in I think ninety two or ninety three. Where it's playful and fun and experimental, and like there's this other guy named Philip Roth out there calling himself Philip Roth, that he and he can't really figure out what's going on, and he's this other Philip Roth is I think advocating for a reverse exodus of the Jews out of Israel, and like there's all there's more interesting stuff about geopolitics and, and Zionism, um, but also literary celebrity and formal experimentation. So. You know, you get that's the yin and the yang. There's there's a lot of Roth to choose from, and like anything, when there's a lot of choices, there's going to be variability. But I think the Zuckerman trilogy is sort of the the apex of the what we might mock about Roth now, and then Operation Shylock is, I think, the kind of book that gets lost in our jokiness about Roth now. And, and all joking aside, um, uh, what, the plot against America, right? Which Roth sort mm. of figures Charles Lindbergh as being a neo Nazi or a Nazi and becoming president of the United States. You got to give Roth a few pressure points there. You know, he was, that's not something, you know, I'm certainly in that camp that it can't happen here. And, I, you know, I think it may be premature to say we're in Nazi era America, but um, certainly beyond this, the scope of politics as normal that I could have imagined. Um, so, anyway, th- th- there's your Philip Roth. If I was going to recommend one, I think I would recommend Goodbye Columbus. Um, it's not very long. It doesn't. It doesn't do a lot of the tricky experimental stuff, which I like, and you might like too. But if you really want to see what made Roth a bombshell in the literary community of the of the fifties, um, that's the one to go to. And I think it still holds up pretty well. I have to say. So that's a lot of response to a jokey maybe question. I'm not <laughs> sure, but uh, there we are. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure who's Let's who's up to see. read this one. Yeah, I'll read okay, this one. Sure. Uh, this is from Erin Fagan. Uh, she has fun getting loved ones a great book for Christmas, but oldest nephew just turned 14, and he's more of a math and science guy. When his family came to visit last summer, he started reading uh, her husband's copy of What If by Randall Monroe, and for the rest of their visit, he was reading the book every spare minute and laughing to himself. He later quoted it to his grandparents, so they gave him his own copy for his birthday and want to keep encouraging him to read. Any recommendations? for a young man who likes funny science type books. He's also interested in Lego, Star Wars, and soccer. Not girls yet. <laughs> um, let's see. I think uh, I think some of the Mary Roach might work mm. for him um, that we mentioned earlier. And my other picks, I'm, I'm going to do a couple directions. The first is I Contain Multitudes by Ed Yong, which came out earlier this year and is a sort of narrative nonfiction-y take on uh, what we understand about bacteria and 
how much we don't understand about bacteria that, you know, like we think of bacteria as bad, but that most of our bodies, like humans are host to more things that are not from us than we are to things that are from us. And most of those things are bacteria. And uh, it's just fascinating and really readable. So I think a 14-year-old who's, uh, uh, you know, sort of at the leading edge of their age group's uh, reading curve would be totally fine with the pros. And you will learn a ton of things about bacteria and the stuff that live in your guts and these like certain bacteria that can only live in certain environments where another certain thing is present. Or like we only have a certain type of coral because this bacteria lives in this temperature of water. And when the coral do this thing, the bacteria do this other thing. And this is how it affects the environment. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and I think that one uh, might be coming out in paperback soon. I don't mm. I don't totally recall. Um, but Ed Yong definitely avoids voice that like sort of threads that needle between Mary Roachiness and Steven Johnson-ness. Like he's telling a big story about a small thing that's everywhere. Um, and I, I really loved I Contain Multitudes. But then more for the um, straight up like laughs about science, there's Why Do Men Have Nipples by Mark Lehner and Billy Goldberg, uh, which every page is a question like that about something related to science or bodies or the natural world um, that gets into like, okay, well, men don't have to nurse babies. So why do they have nipples biologically? And it answers that question and other questions like it um, as a like sort of indicator of the like, it's a good book to like leave in your bathroom um, or out on the coffee table for random picking up. But I think it's right in the wheelhouse for um, like what my nephews have been like at 14. Um, it's funny and interesting and also appropriate. Uh, but I think, I think Jeff, you're going to win this category. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, <laughs> do we have three hours left of the show? I don't know. Because if you swap out Legos for uh, military aircraft models and soccer for baseball, we're talking about uh, uh, Jeff circa 1992 here. So I've got some ideas. Um, obligatory Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series mentioned. Mm. Must at least make sure that he has tried it at 14 um, if he's a sciencey, mathy, nerdy guy. It's fiction, so it's not quite the same, but um, standard recommendation there. Also along fiction lines, Ready Player One by Ernie Klein. Uh, if you're interested in fiction too, 80s science, uh, virtual reality, um, lots of cultural references to Star Wars and other things that it sounds like you're, that your nephew might be, in, be into. Um, on to nonfiction, also, you, you might know this, but Randall Monroe has another book kind of as a, peef, uh, uh, as a of a piece with What If called The Thing Explainer, in which he uses his sense of humor and drawings to explain complicated things in simple language. Like So the one I remember is, he says, don't think of it as a microwave oven, think of it as a... Um, uh, a food heating radio box and sort of <laughs> explains like how things that are all around us that are really actually pretty remarkable uh, if you spend some time to look at it and think about it, like tectonic plates, the periodic table, bridges and tunnels um, with its characteristic wit, humor and intelligence, you know, M Monroe makes the familiar world strange and fascinating. Um, and speaking of someone else who does a similar thing, I don't know if Randall Monroe is the Gary Larson of our generation. Oh, um, interesting. But one that I was into at this age that I think scratches the same nerdy smart kid itch is the you know the complete Far Side collection. At fourteen, he may have never seen a, a Far Side cartoon at this point, which is a an idea that fills me both with delight that it's undiscovered by um, kids of this ilk and generation, but also mortal dread that it's really a shame. Um, that they might not be out there. You, I, I used to have these, you'd get these big gallery collections, these oversized books that would have hundreds of Gary Larson cartoons 
but there there's a there math and science and evolution and creationism and astrology and um they're self-deprecating uh and honest and unflinching and offbeat in a way that you know it's it's a voice i think i miss more than i realize now the far side collections um there's a big retrospective book that you might want to see if you can find used it'll probably cost you 50 or 60 bucks if you're into that but be a wonderful gift for a nerdy early teen with a sense of humor. My last one is um, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe by Chris Taylor, which is a cultural history of Star Wars. was amazing. Awesome. It's long. It's a big book. But if you've got a nerdy kid into Star Wars, you can throw a book at them and they will devour it. I did this one on audio, so I'm not sure if audiobooks are an option. Not teenagers and audiobooks, I'm not really sure what the match is like there. Um, but it starts, you know, goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, of how it came to be, how it influenced culture, so what were the elements that made it the the Titanic phenomena that it was and still is, and increasingly is again. Um, this came out, I think, uh, right before or, or right when right after Disney acquired um, the Star Wars franchise from George Lucas before the Force Awakens and the, the this next cycle of Star Wars movies came out. So. If you're going to get to it, it might be a good time to get to it because it's going to be out of date here pretty quick. Um, and then my last one is also fiction. If Star Wars, I went. I've been reading some of the Star Wars novels that have come out recently. Um, I've been following our, our friend and coworker Swipna's recommendation because he reads all of them. But Lost Stars by Claudia Gray, which is a young adult novel, was great. Um, really wonderful book. Um, it doesn't. It takes place during and around the course of the original trilogy trilogy movies, um, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, but doesn't really feature the characters. It's some of the other features. I mean, it's a big story. There's a lot going on in the galaxy, and this follows a couple of the other people that get wrapped up in the in the macro, political, um, and military you know history of what happens in that era. But it was great. Claudia Gray is a really great writer um, and really gives humanity and specificity to characters that you don't know, but in a universe you do. So that'd be a good pick for for a, a teenager who's into Star Wars um, and space opera and all that stuff. So those are those are my exhaustive, but I could go on for days, but we better move along and let other people have some uh, choice here. We're going to do our last sponsor here. Um, this one is a book that I've been seeing a lot about ever since it had a, it had a big presence at BEA. Um, it's a child of books by Oliver Jeffers and Sam Winston. So this is a picture book... Um, that celebrates books and reading. And each of the spreads, which is a, a term of art for like a two-page layout, right, um, mm -hmm. is a devoted to a particular classic story, and the art is shaped by excerpts of text. So, you know, the, the book asks people what, you know, what made you a child of books, and they got some great responses. So you, I'll put a link in the show notes there where you can see like Salman Rushdie saying what got him into books. But here's the story. So a little girl sails her raft across the sea of words, arriving at the house of a small boy and calling the way on an adventure. Through forests of fairy tales and across mountains of make-believe, the two travel together on a fantastical journey that unlocks the boy's imagination. Now a lifetime of magic and adventure lies ahead of him, but who will be next? Combining elegant images by Oliver Jeffers and Sam Winston's typographical landscape shaped from excerpts of children's classics and lullabies. A Child of Books is a stunning prose poem on the rewards of reading and sharing stories, an immersive and unforgettable reading experience that readers will want to pass on to others. I've seen this in the store. I saw it at BEA. It would be a great gift for a kid in your life. Um, who you want to pass on, who might already like books, or but you would like to engender a love of reading and books. Um, it's beautiful and inspiring. Um, that's A Child of Books by Oliver Jeffers and Sam Winston. Winston. Shouldn't mess up. The, shouldn't joke around with the sponsor. It's Sam Winston. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, I guess I'm up to read the next one. Oh, this is another one we could spend several days in. Um, Mm -hmm. Hi, Jeff and Rebecca. I'm hoping you can help me figure out what the perfect book uh, the perfect book gift for my husband. He is currently working on his NBA and has discovered a love for economics. Uh-huh. He read <laughs> Freakonomics years ago and enjoyed it, but I think he would be more interested in something that delved more into business slash more traditional economic topics. Bonus points if it's an audiobook, as he often has more time to listen to books than to sit down and read. Actually, bonus points if you have any recommendations for me that's outside my wheelhouse and I don't know where to start. Uh, in case it's helpful, he's enjoying Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power by John Meacham on audio, and just finished enjoyed listening to The Billionaire's Vinegar by Benjamin Wallace. He's fairly new to audiobooks, so one of any other titles he's listened to as far as other things he likes to read. He likes science fiction and fantasy, The Martian, Wheel of Time, The Way of Kings, and is currently reading the fifth season. Oh, good for you. No, uh, thanks to you both. And that's from Ali. All right, where do you want to go? All right. I'm starting with uh, All the Things by Dan Ariely. Yeah, there you go. um, Beginning with Predictably Irrational, Uh, Dan Ariely is a behavioral economist, and his books look uh, at a bunch of the studies that he has conducted over, I think, decades of an academic career about um, behavior and the decisions that we make every day that we think we are making for rational reasons, Uh, but that actually, you know, humans are quite irrational when we don't apply a lot of analysis to our decisions. And so it goes to things like uh, if you show a person like you can buy this pair of jeans at store A for 50 bucks, uh, or you can drive 20 miles to store B to get them for $10 off. Um, Is it worth it? Would you do that? Um, And a lot of people say, yes, of course, like I want to save my $10. I will drive the 20 miles to to do that. Um, And Ariely then goes into like, well, is this really rational? Um, How much does the gas cost? And also, how much is your time worth um, in the amount of time that it takes you to drive uh, those 20 miles uh, there and back and do the shopping? Could you find them online for even cheaper? Um, But people will do all kinds of irrational things because they think they're making the rational choice of like, well, of course, I should save my 10 or 20 bucks um, by making that drive. Uh, And so he goes uh, largely into consumer behavior, Uh, with those kinds of things, what we buy, what we don't buy, how we choose uh, brands that we like, sort of how brand loyalty develops is really interesting. Um, And then it, you know, breaks out and applies to all the areas of our life decisions that we make about like childcare and about who's doing chores at home and, you know, how much to spend on different things, um, how to apply our time to different things that, that people just think, like we like to think that we're making decisions for rational reasons, but so much of it is really not. Um, and it's not a bad or a judgmental thing. It's just Ariely being like, look what our brains do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you see that, once you you know know about this thing, uh, you can see those behaviors in yourself and in your family and your coworkers, and you can start to tr- you know try to you know change behaviors or to make your decisions in a more rational and logical fashion. So his books, I think, are fascinating for that on multiple levels. One is that you'll start to see the world uh, and your own decisions in a new way, but the second step being that then you can make different and hopefully better, more rational decisions. Uh, So start him with Predictably Irrational. I did that on audio and it was really interesting. Um, And then if he likes it, Ariely has a whole bunch of other books that are also about 
irrationality and behavioral economics. Um, A slight departure, but one that I go back to over and over is You Are Not So Smart by David McCraney, um, which is more about uh, cognitive fallacies and mistakes that we make in our thinking, but sort of tied to that, things that our brains do. And we assume that because our brain did it naturally, it must be rational. Um, But McCraney breaks out usually sort of chapter by chapter, like this is this cognitive fallacy, this is this other cognitive fallacy. Here's why people are so drawn to conspiracy theories. Um, Here's why we can believe things that don't make any sense at all, or why we do things that don't really make any sense at all. And You Are Not So Smart um, is a a great fun book, um, but also goes to uh, applications for business and economic principles uh, of you know, the core goal of all of these things, if you're getting an MBA and you're thinking about business and economics, is likely to sell something to someone uh, or to get them to adopt a particular idea or a particular behavior. And so thinking about how the brain works and how we make decisions and how we process information uh, and why we do things that really don't make any sense at all, how you can get people to do the thing that makes more sense, uh, all go to that point. So I think uh, you are not so smart would be a good pick there. Um, again, I could get lost in this one for days. It's basically a Busman's MBA question, right? I, I don't know if yeah. you're trying to trick me here, Allie, into giving away all my Busman's MBA secrets, but it worked. Congratulations. Uh, so uh, Rebecca likes Ariella a little. I like Ariella too. I like, in the same vein, Bob Thaler's books a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, Nudge, is, Nudge is about um, basically prompting people to make better or uh, better for them decisions or better for you decisions by using what we know about behavioral psychology to influence how they make decisions. So the famous one is uh, automatic opt-ins for retirement plans. People want to opt in. They, they, they say they want to opt in. But if, you have to, if they do something like proactively enroll and fill out the paperwork, they don't do it. Even though, kind of like the gene example Rebecca is doing it, the cost value or the opportunity cost of not doing it is so severe, but mm-hmm. it feels in the moment like, God, I just can't deal with this. So one thing Bob Thaler and his group suggested doing, and they've consulted with a bunch of um, you know, Fortune 500 companies in setting up their enrollment programs is basically when you fill out your paperwork, you're opted in at a basic level. Um, into the retirement programs. And it increases people's personal retirement savings by a non-trivial percent. And so it's little things like that. Basically, both Ehler and Ariely, what they've done is taken the insights in behavioral psychology spearheaded by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and applied them to economics. Um, Kahneman and Tversky's work is not really about economics necessarily, that they sometimes use money and other value systems as a way of measuring and sort of comparing different logical outcomes. But as it got applied to economics, really isn't transformed the field of economics. And then so Bob Thaler's other books, which is actually my favorite because it's called Making Behavior, and it it tracks the history of behavioral psychology's influence and integration into the larger field of economics. Because you, and as you, and as certainly as your husband knows, has an, who's working on his MBA, uh, standard economic theory posits that people act rationally in a group all the time. So that things like the stock market are usually perfectly priced unless there's some you know information that has elected into the system or something like that. And what Bob Thaler really has done is shown that that's a joke. Like that's just not true. Yep. From, the micro, from the micro level all the way up to the macro level. Um, so I think those are a good combination. I think probably some combination 
of um, Predictably Irrational, Making Behavior, and Nudge is a pretty good trilogy. I did both Making Behavior and Nudge on audiobook. I will say Nudge, there were two versions of the audiobook. The first one is garbage. Make sure you get the second one that's better. That's a real micro-recommendation there. Um, (laughs) Relatedly, Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. Um, Oh, that's a good one. It's about how we are not good on the whole of being able to separate outcomes um, and information from randomness. And the example that really sticks out in my mind here is he talked about Warren Buffett. Everyone, you know, Warren Buffett, the greatest investor who's ever lived, blah, blah, blah. And Taleb, in, in sort of a classic way, says, well, he might be great. But it also could be that if you take, you know, millions and millions of people over the last century picking stocks, you're going to have one outlier that either – and it's not just because they're great at picking stocks or making acquisitions, but because of just the sheer randomness um, of history and of math and of the stock market is going to pick a uh, outsized number of winners relative to the baseline. So is Warren Buffett really good or really not? Well, we really don't know. And then you know, kind of what being fooled by randomness – can make us do one of one of his particular um, objects of ire is um, what's the the millionaire next door book, mm-hmm. where which is you know sort of here's all the millionaires next door and you know what do they all have in common? Well, and then Taleb says really that the the way the people profiled don't have any different sort of profiles than other investors who've invested money in the stock market over time. It's just they got lucky. And the Monte yeah. Carlo simulation that our universe has become, this is the one that won. He's a really interesting guy. He's very, very controversial in economic circles, as it once, at least he once was. I think maybe more so before the economic crash in 2008, in which Taleb made a killing because he was, he's, you know, he's saying, you know, this stuff isn't going to hold up. Um, I also think in this era of Trump and polling, it's also an interesting moment to think about, you know, fooled by randomness and, you know, what were we fooled by? What were we not fooled by? Really interesting thing to be there. Also, if you want to get into sort of specific math principles, I like math. I'm not very good at it. So a book um, I really like called is called How Not to Be Wrong by Jordan Ellenberg. Um, and it takes basically, you know, relatively simple mathematics principles and applies them to everyday life. Um, stuff about statistics and normal distribution and things like that. Um, and it, it, it uses real world, real world and historical examples to show them. Um, and how, you know, things of how you can apply it to your own life and your own work and things like that. The one that sticks out to me, and I'm going back to the Manhattan Project again, or the, the Manhattan Project is during World War II, um, the Air Force, which was just then the Army Air Force, wanted to figure out where to put armor on the undersides of its bombers. You know, where, where was the, the airplane most vulnerable to bullets? And so let's put more armor there. Um, and if we, you know, if we reinforce that, then, then we really know. So they brought, they they did a study and they basically counted and charted out the bullet holes on the planes that came back from you know that survived the mission and said okay mm-hmm. look here's where the bullets are hitting so let's armor these places and the mathematicians i think if i got this right it was oppenheimer's group then at manhattan project columbia university and said can you help us figure out use some math and do this and oppenheimer says this is the wrong sample I need to see the bullet holes on the planes that crashed, right? So what he said is we need to look on the planes that survived. Where aren't the bullet holes? Right. Because the bullet holes that are fatal aren't going to come back. Um, and by using statistics and normal distribution said, well, you can look at if, – if every plane of the – let's assume that every part of the plane is equally likely to be hit, 
right? Then you can see where the patterns are and where bullet holes aren't on surviving planes to figure out where they... That's actually where we should put the armor. And it turns out over the fuel tanks. Makes sense, right? That's where the planes that survived and came back from their missions didn't have bullet holes. We're on the bullet. We're over the fuel tanks. So my memory now, again, once you guys listen to this book, I might have the details screwed up. It's been a couple years since I read this. My understanding is that they put some armor over there and they increased the survivability of the planes. So you can, you can see why that's interesting. Each chapter takes on a different mathematical principle. It can it, 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 The lottery, um, a whole bunch of interesting stuff there. So that's How Not to Be Wrong by Jordan Ellenberg. And I think I've done all of those on audio and can, and can say they're all good on mm-hmm. audio. So those are my picks there. And again, I don't want to spend 10,000 hours, though, easily (laughs) on that topic. Um, Let's round out our show with another section of our shared wheelhouse. Yes. Uh, This is a question from Vinny. Uh, He's a newcomer to the Book Riot uh, podcast and was about to email me for a recommendation, but then found out about this show. So it's good timing. Uh, He wants to know, since we are big Toni Morrison fans, uh, he's almost finished Paradise, my uh, his third one of hers. He read Sula and Home and liked them both, but Paradise has me completely floored. I love it. I haven't read Beloved, but will clearly be reading that one. Besides those four, which would you recommend I read next? I know you really can't go wrong, but like any great author, each probably has a different personality. Uh, so I'm curious to hear a super fan's thoughts. Um, I know we will both have thoughts about this. Um, Vinny, Paradise is my favorite Toni Morrison by a mile. Um, and I love most of her books, but Paradise also just knocked me sideways when I first read it and continues to be my favorite. Um, since you're going to read Beloved, I think uh, you have to go then next to Jazz um, because Paradise, Beloved, and Jazz are something of a trilogy, mm-hmm. not in a continuing characters sense, but you can see that Morrison is thinking about the same things in different points of history and through different character lenses in those three books together. Um, jazz is set in Harlem in the 1920s. Uh, it's about uh, a man. He's a, a middle-aged guy. He's a salesman uh, who sells beauty products door to door. He shoots his teenage lover to death. And at her funeral, Joe's wife attacks the girl's corpse. Um, and that's th- sort of the activating incident. But we really see um, this community of black people in Harlem uh, in the 1920s. It's 1926. I think I just Googled Mm. um, sort of coming to consciousness about themselves and their community in a new way, doing the things that Morrison does, looking at sort of hard aspects of life, of love, of relationships and friendships and some taboo things, right? Like a middle-aged man with a teenage lover is Mm -hmm. not the most socially acceptable thing, but more Morrison just takes it as a given uh, in these lives and and builds a whole story around it. And there's stuff about memory and forgiveness. I mean, it's a big Morrison book, but it's a small book. It's very, I think it's one of the, it's one of the shorter ones. ones yeah. Um, so I would go there. Um, and then if you, if, if she's really, you know, rocking your brain, um, do some Googling for some of the great uh, academic essays that have been written about Beloved Jazz and Paradise as a trilogy. Um, that's how uh, the, the capstone course that I took for my English minor in college was a Morrison seminar. And so I learned about these three books as a trilogy and uh, 
can't remember the specific pieces that we read about them, but I remember really uh, finding that to be a satisfying exercise to think about these three seemingly very different books on their face, but what she's doing there, putting them, putting the three of them together and how they stand alongside each other. So that's my pick. Yeah. And I was just going to, the, the standard pick I give for people entering Morrison or wanting to try is to, again, to use Rebecca's advice from earlier is to start at the beginning with the bluest eye. You get a lot of what Morrison is about um, packed into one slender, easier to to understand and follow than a lot of the, though not easy uh, don't 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 misunderstand me she's still Morrison she's still Tony mm-hmm. um but as a single volume if you had to pick one i think i would still pick the bluest eye for me the 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 pantheon of Morrison and we're talking about them all here the only one i would add is song of solomon right i yeah. bluest eye jazz sula beloved paradise you know that's that that the, and again like i i i like sula um, very much, and then those are the books. I mean, beloved song. Of, I mean, I got them all. Beloved song of Solomon. Yeah, Tar Baby. I mean, Tar, Tar Baby. Tar Baby's the one mercy, I always forget. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, a mercy love. Love. Home. Um, the most recent one, which is not a good sign that I'm not remembering it right now. God help. God the help child. the child. They're they're all interesting in their own rights, but there's five novels that, if you like one. You got to read them all. I mean, I just think you're going to owe mm-hmm. it to yourself yeah, to read them agree. all. And we're we're kind of splitting hairs about which order to go in. Um, <laughs> I like jazz a great deal too, uh, n- no doubt there. So we're out. Of, we're we're done with our first hour. We still have some questions that people submitted. We want to get to, and so we're going to go to a second episode for next week. So if you didn't get something a recommendation request in, and you have one burning a hole in your pocket, please send it to us at podcast at bookriot.com. And we'll, you know, if it's only half the show, we'll do some news next week too. But if we get enough, um, we didn't get through all we thought we were going to because we're loudmouths and I talked forever about Star Wars books. Uh, but su- go ahead and send us an email and we'll do, another, we'll do another show next week. Does that sound fair? Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. That we sounds have, good. Uh, and so if you send in a question that we didn't get to this week, yeah, we we're gonna get to hope it. to get yeah. to it next week. We have not Oh, I've got some good recs you. for these. We got to get to these. I mean, yeah, we, we have you've good, got good recs too. You've done a hell of a yeah, job. Yeah, we too. got good ones for next week. Um, not We got most of the businessy ones yeah, out of the way this time around. So if up. you're like, God, guys, cops, stop yeah. talking about behavioral economics, poetry, you will fantasy, get your wish next week. Uh, you know, 1920s New York historical fiction, um, sort of big commercial. F- yeah, we got, you know, it's a, it's more mm-hmm. of a fiction hour next time. Yeah. Sh- shaping up to be. Thanks so much to Candlewick. They they they, they bought out the show, our holiday recommendation show, our, our episode one. So go check. Let's see what what are our titles we're looking at here. The hired uh, girl, retro photo, retro photo, by David Ramy Nightingale by Kate DiCamillo. The hired girl by Laura Amy Schultz. And A Child of Books by Oliver Jeffers and Sam Winston. Go check those out. There'll be links to the show notes to all of them there. I guess, I guess, I guess I'll put, what are we going to do for the sh- titles? People always say, well, can you list all the titles? I guess we'll figure something else to do in the show notes yeah, for we'll, the Yeah, we can put the, yeah, we can just list the books yeah, that we mentioned Yeah, I'm not going to replicate yeah. everyone's questions exactly, but maybe I'll group them by some sort of topic. I'll, I'll get off my lazy duff and uh, figure out some way to do it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for submitting uh, questions. We, had a, we always have a lot of fun thinking of these and then talking about them together. Um, as always, you can find show notes to this and other episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. That will give you sort of the master list of all of our podcasts. Go to the Book Riot one. You can navigate backwards from there. Uh, that's our show. We hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.